financial is one of them. But what are, the, what are some of the other things, David, that uh, where the culture clashes? Um, another one that's pretty that's very common is some companies operate with a blame based culture, so that if there's a problem, they're quick to look for somebody to blame for it. And there are others that operate with a solution-based culture. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales, marketing, providing great service, etc., and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus only on the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have a personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large, complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is David Schreiner Khan. David is a recognized authority on entrepreneurship, leadership development, and the host of the business podcast, Smashing the Plateau. Featured in Forbes Magazine, three podcasts to power up your ultra-lean business, and Inc. Magazine's Five Entrepreneurs That Will Change the Way You Communicate, over 400 episodes of Smashing the Plateau offer a wealth of personal experiences and practical advice to help lead your business through challenging transitions. David, it's so great to have you here on the show. Thank you, Corey. It's great to be here. So, David, I know, you know, we're going to talk a, a little bit about, you know, what you do and, and, and your great podcast and, uh, and, and then definitely about your uh, experience in working with people on integrating mergers post, you know, uh, and other combinations post-merger because that's so important. But before we do that, I want to take you back and ask, what did you want to be when you were a little kid? Because my guess is it's, it wasn't doing what you do now, and certainly it wasn't being a podcast host, because when you and I grew up, there was no such thing as podcasts. So no, but, but there were radio shows. Which Absolutely. Really, I mean, a podcast is basically like, it's a radio show that's listen on demand. Absolutely. So is that, I mean, did, did you know you wanted to do something like that when you were a kid? Oh, or was, you, uh, you know. You, yeah, you've got to be kidding, Corey. I was uh, for sure not. Um, and in reality, I was pretty clueless of what I wanted to do when I, quote, grew up. You know, many, many years later, I'm still working on that. Um, I believe life is a work in progress. And, um, and, you know, truth be told, I've had basically numerous careers in quite different sectors. That's great. So, so what was, um, what was your first, however you define this, what was your first real business? Um, so my first real business um, as, as an entrepreneur was, uh, was relatively recently. It was, it's sort of the the, the more recent chapter in my, uh, my professional career, which was uh, about 12 years ago when I launched a one-person consulting business. Great. And t- t- tell me a little bit about that and how it evolved. Um, it evolved because I um, frankly wanted to do something where I was in charge. And I had spent, um, at that point, I'd been in the working world for close to 30 years. The first part was in the um, in the corporate sector, working as an engineer. The second part was in the nonprofit sector um, in various kinds of leadership and management roles. And uh, uh, especially, and actually in, in both cases, 
I was interacting with a lot of consultants. I had hired plenty of consultants in my career. And I thought, you know what, if I really just want to do my own thing, I'll be a consultant. So it, it was no more complicated than that in terms of like the decision-making process. The reality is um, being an entrepreneur, even if you're still basically working with the same kinds of organizations that you work with as an employee, and if you're in the same field that you were in as an employee, still working in your own business is very different than working in somebody else's business or organization. Yeah, no, no question about that. I mean, uh, I've been an entrepreneur for over 30 years and uh, most of my clients and our listeners uh, are, you know, some are business executives working in other places, but the entrepreneurial journey is, uh, is definitely a different road. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I also find that when I'm in the advice giving role, that people who are on the other side of the, the conversation generally fall into either the entrepreneurship world or the employee world. Um, I find that there's not a whole lot that's in between. Absolutely. So David, tell us a little bit uh, more about how things have evolved, what you're doing now in terms of your you know, core business and, uh, and definitely about your podcast. Sure. Um, so my business, um, I mean, one of the things about having a small business is that you have the, the ability to make some pretty major transformations in your business in response to what's going on in the marketplace. And so um, initially, my work as an independent consultant was primarily with the kinds of organizations that I had been part of in the nonprofit sector. So I'm doing a lot of nonprofit management work. Um, I started to be asked by small businesses for the same kinds of help and ended up um, becoming much more involved in the kind of work that we do that's uh, in the private sector. And, um, and also made a pretty conscious decision, I don't know, maybe six years ago or so to start doing some content creation um, because I saw that, that others that were doing things that I thought were, um, were interesting and, um, and, and g- gaining some recognition were involved in content marketing. Uh, so we started a blog and then the blog after a couple of years uh, moved into a podcast um, because the interview format was one that actually works well for the kind of work that we do. And also um, it works well for my own personal skills and the podcast actually turned out to be a great, um, great medium for connecting with people, both guests and, and the audience. And, uh, and I really like doing it. So it's one of the, you know, it's sort of like you, um, uh, if if you find something that you like doing and is serving um, serving a purpose, then um, it's more likely that you're going to do it consistently. Well, uh, talking about consistently, I mean, you're you know 400 episodes in, and everybody should check out uh, Smashing the Plateau that uh, the podcast. Uh, and for people that don't know the podcast world, 400 episodes in is a is a huge accomplishment. I mean, uh, many many people. There are many examples of people who start podcasts and do six or eight or twelve or. 15 episodes and then stop. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and uh, so somebody, uh, you know, has 400 episodes uh, and, you know, the quality of uh, type of podcast that David's uh, done is doing something right. So you should definitely check it out. Yeah, I would say you're totally right, Corey. The The average podcaster does way fewer than two dozen episodes and generally doesn't last more than six months. Right. And, and listen, it's it's interesting for me as somebody, uh, you know, and we'll 
We'll jump into the the, uh, the uh, deal conversation in a moment, but it's interesting to me as an entrepreneur uh, who is you know earlier in my podcast journey. Uh, I feel like it's the same thing when I when I wrote my book uh, uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Authentic Negotiating. You know, I, most people don't know that most books sell under three hundred copies. So the average book sells under three hundred copies, and ninety eight percent of the books, something like that, sell under a thousand copies. And um, so the same thing happens with authors, right? You know, they either claim they're going to write a book and they don't, or they write a book and then they don't do anything with it. They, they don't understand how the model works. And uh, so one of the things I did when I wrote the book, similar to when I, I mean, I spent over a year, year and a half, studying the podcast model before I decided to launch. Because, you know, when I do something, I'm not going to do eight or 12 episodes. I'm going to be at 400 at some point, David. <laughs> I just need some time. <laughs> yes, you will be. And, it, you know, people who ask me about podcasting and what it takes to be a successful podcaster. And I, my answer is um, there are actually, I think, three components that are the most important. Frequency, consistency, and quality. And in that order. Right, right, which is really fascinating that it's in that order, right? So l- let's let's jump over and talk about because one of the things that you and I uh, had a little bit of a you know exchange about uh, was something that's super super important uh, in the deal world that's often often overlooked. So you know one of the things that I, that I uh, talk to entrepreneurs about is, and you know you can hear it in my intro, is that you know too many firms actually uh, don't even take advantage of the possibility of doing deals. They they struggle to grow organically or they don't grow as fast as they want, and they don't understand that there are all types of deals that can be done. Um, and then the, the question beyond that, though, is if you're going to do deals, how do you do them successfully? And obviously, that involves due diligence up front and structuring the deal right and pricing it right and all that kind of good stuff. The often overlooked thing is what happens after the deal closes? And what uh, are the things you need to be concerned about then? What are the things that some companies do right? And where are the pitfalls and problems that a lot of uh, companies run into post-deal? Um, yeah, I'm so glad that you're focusing on this, Corey, because I think it is one of the most important aspects of success related to a deal. And if you look at the statistics, you know, something like 80% of mergers and acquisitions are not successful. Um, and, and it's generally not because of the, the financial terms of the deal. It's usually for other reasons. So yeah, talk to me about some of the other, the other reasons that you see come up. Um, it's the people. Whenever you're, you're creating, you're doing a deal that is either a merger or an acquisition. And in reality, every merger is probably really an acquisition anyway, because um, one culture ends up predominating more than likely. Um, what, you're, what you're doing is you're, you are combining cultures and if you think about it, like w- one common definition of culture is the way people behave when nobody's watching. So if you think about the average employee or the average customer, how is it that they behave in relation to the company when nobody is watching? And if there are differences in the way different groups of people behave, particularly significant differences, what are the consequences? So, so let's, let's break down some of those differences. I mean, I, I remember one example, you know, it's interesting for me because, you know, in my role as a lawyer and a consultant and things like that on deals, you know, my job is largely to help the clients get the deal done if they want to get it done. 
and um, you know, I'm looking to uh, not be one of those lawyers, right? You know, lawyers get a reputation of being deal killers, and you know, frankly, lawyers wrestle at that. But there's there's actually some good reasons why a lot of my colleagues are deemed that way. Um, but at the same time, I do raise these issues with clients, and I remember one deal that I had where it was so clear to me that the cultures were going to clash. Uh, they were both very successful in their business. One had a uh, scrimp and save and 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 uh, keep expenses super low culture, and the other company had a got to spend money to make money, travel first class, entertain clients culture. And um, I remember sitting them down in a room, just asking the questions, not because I was looking to kill a deal, but because I, I wanted to make sure they weren't going to do a deal that would then end up going bad. And asking questions like, "Okay, you know, your leases are up. What kind of office space, you know, uh, do you all want? Uh, you know, uh, have you talked about what your you know client entertainment budgets are going to be?" And you know, long story short, they they sort of figured out on their own, you know, with a little subtle prompting from me, that their cultures would never fit together. So. You know, financial is one of them, but what are the, what are some of the other things, David, that uh, where the culture clashes? Um, another one that's pretty that's very common is some companies operate with a blame based culture, so that if there's a problem, they're quick to look for somebody to blame for it. And there are others that operate with a solution based culture. So if the, if if there's a problem, our job is to look for a solution so that either we can solve what's going on right now, or if it's not solvable in this instance, we'll learn from what happened so that we are less likely to have the same problem again. That's a great one. And I'm wondering whether, uh, I mean, obviously the, the this companies that have a solution-based culture, are, I'm sure are happy to talk about that and whatever, but the companies that have a blame-based culture, uh, you know, how do you really, first of all, do they admit that? And how does one determine that? And you know, if you're working with somebody uh, on that, uh, you know, how, how do you how do you address that? Uh, well, it really requires some careful listening. And one of the things that um, that we do when we work with companies that are going through a major transformation, often due to a merger or an acquisition, is to speak to as many people one on one as possible in a non-judgmental way so that we can learn what their fears are. And uh, a blame-based culture creates a lot of fear. Yeah. Right, because people are, they're afraid that they're gonna get blamed, so they're reluctant to take any kind of steps that will get them noticed. They're afraid, which, which also, you know, it doesn't help with things like trying to be innovative. Yeah, and, and what's interesting to me is that, um, you know, that concept of creating uh, a culture that has a lot of fear in it, you know, even when two com- good companies are merging or combining in some way or there's an acquisition, um, there's always fear just related to the change involved on both sides. And certainly if it's a smaller company being acquired by a larger one or, you know, where the, the integration is into, you know, from company A into company B, uh, you know, where certainly uh, on the side of company A, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, which causes fear already. So when you add that to the fear you're talking about, I'm sure it causes a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, another another method that can help determine what's going on is um, management by walking around. So for the the CEO or people in the C-suite to have blocks of time that are not scheduled with 
strategic decision-making, but where they actually spend time walking around, getting to know employees at all levels of the company, getting to know customers at all levels, and listening to what they're hearing from employees and listening to what they're hearing from customers. That's really important. Um, They'll get some important clues. Too often, um, especially in bigger companies, people higher up in the in the food chain are way too removed from what's going on at the ground level. No question about that. And and I guess that raises a challenge on a deal. So if you're somebody's trying to do due diligence on the other side, on the company you're going to be acquired by or acquire or, or merge into, um, you know, there's always a sensitivity about how much access that company's going to give you to their rank and file employees and, you know, beyond the executive management. And so do you have any suggestions on how uh, a potential uh, deal partner uh, in advance, uh, you know, in the due diligence phase would try to determine uh, some of these cultural things to try to avoid the pitfalls? Yeah, I mean, you, you could ask the questions of the people that you are communicating with. You know, presumably you're communicating with a very small number of people at the top, but you could ask them questions about what kinds of um, what kinds of information gathering do you typically um, do you typically do in your company? Information gathering from employees, information gathering from customers. Um, have you ever brought on outside consultants to do some of the information gathering? So it's a third party. Do you ever um, do you have things like simple things like regular performance reviews? How do you handle them? And as part of your performance review, is it just you dictating to the employees? what you think they're doing wrong or where they need to improve, or are you listening to what um, what they're telling you about not only how they want to grow personally and professionally, but also what they're seeing as both the opportunities and the risks that the business as a whole is going through. Any other thoughts, uh, just uh, tips or, or pitfalls that you see in these kind of things when, uh, either, you know, companies come together or, you know, or even listen, I mean, uh, it doesn't necessarily right have to be a merger acquisition. Sometimes people are bringing in, uh, you know, key management. Uh, sometimes people are, um, uh, you know, are doing some sort of strategic joint venture with another entity. And you know, these kind of issues come up in those situations as well, right? Um, yeah. So be really clear on why changes are being made and make sure you communicate that to everybody who's involved and not just once, but multiple ways. Because uh, people absorb information differently, so um, emails, other kinds of internal communications, external communications, uh, sometimes social media is appropriate, particularly if you're talking about interactions with customers. Uh, sending around information by paper is important. Having an opportunity to have group discussions and individual discussions with employees and customers about any kinds of changes to make sure people really understand the rationale for the change and that they their fears are allayed. Because the, the biggest problem is when there are fears that are not being addressed. And, and people will spend a lot of time dwelling on their fears not being productive. And you, what you don't want to have happen, particularly when you're talking about any kind of major change, whether it's bringing on new management or, or um, a merger or acquisition, you don't want to have your best people afraid to stay in the company and to start shopping around for new jobs. 
That's great advice. And and I, I want to sort of bring this down because uh, a lot of uh, what we've been alluding to is how we deal with, you know, employees and, you know, and, and uh, messaging and in bigger companies and bigger cultures. But, you know, there are smaller deals that are done as well where, you know, you raise something. The first thing I said to you is when, when I said, what's the biggest issue, you know, in terms of uh, bringing two uh, companies together? And you said the people. And that applies whether it's hundreds or thousands or whether it's three. Um, so, I guess an area I'd love to hear about, I'm sure you run into, is let's say even we have a smaller deal where the people involved are, you know, the ones negotiating. So, you know, you have a couple of people here or there. Um, Talk to me a little bit about, I guess I would call it self-awareness, right? Because people don't necessarily even uh, necessarily understand themselves and how it will work in combination with someone else. Partnerships aren't easy. So uh, give me your thoughts on that. Well, yeah, um, you're um, you're touching on a very important point. Um, you know, we had a situation where we were working with a, a client that was a small company and um, had an opportunity to buy a competitor, which they did, um, basically doubled in size. And not only were there lots of fears among the employees, there were also fears among the um partnership level of the two companies and one one of the one of the risks for the acquiring company was loss of talent of the um the previous owners of the company being acquired one one of the important factors you you have a lot of tacit knowledge that's part of of owners of small companies and you don't want to lose that immediately when the company gets acquired. Um, so making sure that there was a smooth transition and integration of the um, what ended up being multiple owners post-acquisition was really important. And, um, and, and we, we did that with um, a lot of one-on-one discussions to try to understand what, um, what the people involved were feeling and thinking. Yeah, I think I think people underestimate sometimes. I mean, certainly people in my profession, uh, you know, and lawyers, also maybe accounts, investment bankers, whatever, who are more looking at the structure of deals and the numbers and deals and the, you know, uh, things like that. Uh, how important some of this psychology is. I mean, I've had deals where. Uh, you know, the seller ends up getting cold feet because psychologically they're not really willing to sell. And, you know, I, I won't go into a lot of examples, but, you know, I'd love to hear if you have any, uh, you know, where, where, for example, uh, you know, we were able to get a deal done that was uh, basically on the rocks, not because of anything in the structure, whatever, it was because the owner really realized that he couldn't fully give up his baby. And, and when we let him keep a corner office and always come in and, and place some, you know, uh, uh, made him made him the executive chair and had him still be able to interact with his top five clients. The deal got done. Um, whereas, honestly, without that, it doesn't matter how much money was on the table; it wouldn't have gotten done. So, you know, any any examples or thoughts you have around sort of that psychology that happens with uh, owners of businesses and executives? Yeah, the psychology is really important. Um, so you have clients that have longstanding relationships with these owners, and you don't want the clients to leave because that's part of the value of of acquiring the company. Um, so making sure that the, the, the owner who is selling the company is able to maintain the, the relationships with clients long enough and begin to transition them 
to the new owners, that's really important. Um, and very often, they're not only business relationships, they're personal relationships, especially when you have clients that may go back decades. So what, what can you do so that the owner who is selling the company feels like the clients that, that he or she has nurtured for decades are going to be well taken care of? Um, there's a lot of psychology involved in that. Same thing is also true with employees. Um, they may have employees that they have had, if, especially if you're talking about a small company, a company with you know, a dozen, two dozen employees. Very often those employees have been with the company for also for decades and they're, um, they're close personal relationships. It's not just a business relationship. So for the owner to feel comfortable that I'm turning over my employees to somebody new to be in charge, that's not easy to do. And what do you need to do so that that owner will feel comfortable turning over the the authority for that relationship to somebody new? Um, do you need to give that person an office where he or she can come in on a regular basis to um, to interact with the employees, to feel confident that the employees are being taken care of? These are all very complex issues and and psychology is a really important part of it. So when when companies bring you in, do you find more, uh, are you coming in after uh, the deal is done and they're figuring out that they have a bunch of these problems or are, are, are companies smart enough to bring somebody like you in uh, in advance to help them identify and uh, get ahead of these problems? Well, sort of like, like um, going to the physician. Do you go in for your annual exam? And, and start to plan ahead? Or do you wait until you start to feel aches and pains and you look for therapy? Um, way too often, people are reactive as opposed to being proactive. I, I wish that more people were proactive, but they are not necessarily. Well, I, I, you know, I didn't know what your answer was going to be, but I sort of knew what your answer was going to be because <laughs> uh, that's human nature and that's my experience. So listen, uh, you know, listeners out there, um, you know, one of the things that uh, is crucial in having a merger work, and when I say work, that means doing, you know, it, it's everything from choosing the right deal, uh, structuring it properly, doing the right due diligence, and then integrating it properly on the back end, which includes, by the way, things we're not talking about like proper technology integration and, and a million other things, but certainly the cultural integration. The more that you can anticipate and get ahead of these things and bring in the right professionals like somebody like David, uh, you know, it really makes sense because trust me, it will save you whatever money you spend up front. It will save you way more in the back end and have the chance of your deal being successful, uh, be much, much higher. Um, yeah, that's for sure, Corey. Yeah. And, you know, and you're right, David. So, you know, so, you know, few people, uh, you know, uh, do that. Uh, and that's why you know a lot a lot of deals uh, a lot of deals do go bad, um, but uh, just just so we're not only focusing on you know all of what can go wrong, um, I'm sure and I would hope that you've seen uh, opportunities where companies have done it right you know potentially with your help or you know or otherwise and uh, and there's been huge advantages of doing a deal right, right right so so actually so the um, the situation that I mentioned earlier about the small company that acquired another company. Um, both companies had been around for more, uh, certainly more than two decades, I think perhaps more than three. Many of the employees had been around for a decade or more, if not two decades or more. 
And like many small companies, a lot of the knowledge was in people's heads. There, there wasn't a huge amount that was documented, um, unlike bigger companies. And um, we, we, we made some steps that were actually really helpful in providing a smooth transition. Um, we came up with a communication plan so that all of the employees really understood why this acquisition was taking place. And we made sure that there was a clear structure in place for all of the employees post-acquisition so that they knew where they fit in the new company. Because there, there was some rearrangement. Um, and we were also dealing with multiple geographic locations. We created a personal relationship building program for employees because just like in any other situation in business, people want to do business with those they know, like, and trust. And that's true in the same company between employees. Employees will want to work with and be helpful to other employees when they know, like, and trust them. And you do that through building personal relationships. We actually created a program for that. Um, we created a, a, a timetable and made sure that we had a, um, a project manager for any kind of significant change, even little things like, um, you know, we had to integrate the phone systems. So we needed to have somebody who was in charge of the plan to integrate the phone systems. And that, that meant there was also a point person, anybody with a question could ask about what's going to be happening to, with my phone. Um, so there are some, some little things that turned out to be very helpful to really make this work smoothly. And it sounds like it turned into a successful deal. Um, it was a very successful deal and uh, the company's doing quite well. That's great. That's a great example. So, uh, David, before I ask you my last question, uh, I just want to make sure, I and mean, we're, we're going to have it in the show notes, but I, what's the best place for people uh, to contact you and find out more information about you? Uh, they can go to actually the website for our podcast, smashingtheplateau.com. There's a get in touch form on the, on the site. Um, they can fill out the information there. They can also email me, david at smashingtheplateau.com or call our office. We have um, live humans who answer the phone during business hours, Eastern time, um, 212-731-0770. Well, that's great. So listen, listeners, uh, obviously, I think you get a great feel for uh, the way uh, David and his team can 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 help uh, uh, your company if you're doing a deal or, or even if you're not, because a lot of these issues he raised is not only in connection with, with deals getting done. So definitely reach out to him. Definitely check out uh, the podcast. Uh, and uh, David, my, my, my final question for you is, um, so one of the things that I'm really uh, committed to is inspiring authenticity in business. And for me, authenticity is not just the conversation of integrity, it's really the conversation of alignment, right? So, you know, I'm sure when you work with uh, entrepreneurs and business executives, uh, having their business decisions and their decisions on growth or culture or whatever be in alignment with their, who they are, their inner truth, what their values are is important. And I find that on deals, you know, that that's a very significant as well. So uh, I'd love to hear, uh, you know, and a lot of things you've said address this, but I'd love to hear, uh, you know, whether it's for your clients or really, I'd be really interested in for you, how do you make sure that you stay in an authentic place and make your own, you know, your decisions and your business and how you advise clients come from that authentic place aligned with your values? Um, well, there are a couple of things you could do. One is you can just ask each person who is a stakeholder to write a value statement and, and compare them and see if they look like they're pretty much 
in sync or not. And if they're not, then it's a problem. Another thing that, that I often do with clients is to ask them to map their clients based on um, two criteria. Um, one is how, um, how profitable they are. And the second is how easy it is to work with them. And if you plot them out on a grid, you'll find that there's some portion of your clients that are not so profitable and they're not so great to work with. And the, the reality is this not so great to work with part has a lot to do with the values not being in sync. And what you should do every so often is look at your your client list and take that bottom, you know, some small percentage from the bottom of the ones that are not so profitable and not so easy to work with and refer them to somebody else. Absolutely. There's somebody they belong working with, not you, right? Correct. <laughs> That's great. Well, listen, David, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to the size, amount of capital, or any other factor other than owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. Well, it's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.